I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Dr. Ken Hammond, a professor of East Asian and Global History at NMSU since 1994, who lived in Beijing from 1982 to 1987, prior to completing his PhD at Harvard in 1994. He subsequently joined the history faculty of NMSU, specializing in East Asian history, especially 16th century China. From 2007 to 2015, he was co-director of the Confucius Institute at NMSU. Long interested in human rights and protest movements, he was a leader in the Students for a Democratic Society at Kent State University from 1967 to 1970. Today's interview will focus on the historical context for recent events in Myanmar, also known as Burma. So Ken, welcome to Delving In. Very glad to be here, Stuart. So let's start with hearing a little bit about your interest in and contact with Southeast Asia, your, your background. Well, actually, Southeast Asia was the first sort of part of the world uh, outside the United States that I became interested in all the way back in high school. Uh, the timing was just, I was in high school in the mid-1960s. There was a lot of stuff going on in Asia at that point, of course, the Vietnam War. My brother was uh, in the military over there. Uh, the events, the big coup in Indonesia in the fall of 1965, the Cultural Revolution was going on in China. It was a part of the world that uh, sort of drew my attention, seemed like one should know something about what was going on there. So um, I just started uh, reading about it. Eventually, my, my primary focus shifted up to China and East Asia, but I've always retained a a sort of fascination with the different countries of Southeast Asia. I've been fortunate enough to be able to travel there a number of times. Um, so it's just been a, uh, an interest which has remained kind of as a, as a second tier focus throughout my, my studies and, and research and things like that. Mm -hmm. And you speak some of the languages as well? I don't speak uh, Southeast Asian languages, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the true Southeast Asian languages. I have French, so that, for example, when I've been mm -hmm. in Vietnam, I've been able to use that a bit. Um, I've tried to pick up, you know, phrases like hello and how much and can I have another beer and things like that, uh, which I can get by in, in, mm -hmm. in Thai mm -hmm. or... or uh, or Vietnamese, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't uh, I don't really uh, approach any level of competence in Southeast Asian languages. Okay, so where is Myanmar, and why should we care about it? And and I don't mean that as a challenge. It's I mean I think there's probably an awful lot that's relevant, but it's literally halfway around the world, and it's in the news to some extent. But there's got to be also some other reasons why it's really. Uh, would be beneficial to us to, to learn from from their troubles, I should say. Well, I think that, in fact, the situation with, with Myanmar or Burma uh, is is one of the clearest and, and most extreme, in a sense, examples of problems that exist in many other parts of the world as well, which is to say that the problems that have plagued the country uh, for almost 75 years now uh, arise from its experience as as a part of, uh, of European, specifically British colonialism. And the legacies of that as a post-colonial state, a post-colonial political unit, uh, have been have been very, very problematic in Myanmar. Uh, and that 
is is not something that is in any way unique to that country. But it, it, the, the problems there are perhaps more intense and, and have been exacerbated by many of the choices that have been made by the, 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 the leaders, the governors there uh, since independence. So I think that, that knowing about Myanmar can, can help us to understand what some of the, the nature of some of these problems, these sort of post-colonial, if you will, problems, uh, and the problems of, of, of small countries trying to develop their economies in a, in a period of, of just massive global capitalist development. I suppose we can't blame all of its problems on colonialism, but colonialism made it much worse. Absolutely, I think that that very true. We can't the the problems that that exist in in Myanmar, which are you know basically, well, there's a lot of problems, but but one of the basic structural problems is the relationship between a majority ethnic population uh, of of Burma Burmese people and. A, a riotous proliferation of small ethnic communities scattered around the geographic periphery of the country. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, when you when you think about about Burma, if you want to sort of have a, a, a geographic uh, image uh, in your head, it, it, you can sort of think of it as as looking something like an egg. Although there's a little tail that drags down to the to the southeast, where there's a the, there's a core area. Uh, along the valley of the Irrawaddy River that is the, the old ancient heartland of, of the country. Uh, and that's where the majority of the population lives. That's the, and that population, about 70% of the population, is overwhelmingly of one ethnicity, the Burmese people. And then, you know, so that's sort of like the yoke. And then the white all around it is this, this incredibly rich and dense mixture of other peoples. Uh, some populations, the Shan people in the east, for example, are, are a relatively large group, a few million people. Other groupings uh, may only be a few tens of thousands of people. There are something like 135 recognized ethnic communities within the, the present political frontiers of the state of Myanmar. Uh, and, and one overwhelmingly big one, and then lots of these, these little ones. And that, those tensions, those relationships go back deep into, into history, the relationship between the Burmese kingdoms and these, these people in the peripheral areas. That, that goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But the experience of, of British colonialism changed those relationships in ways which then affected the post-colonial, the, the, the period of independence. So th these people who, uh, who live on the fringes physically, <clears throat> um, I guess a couple of questions, are they ethnically related to the countries that are bordering? And that's one question. The other question is, were they subsumed into those ancient empires or were they always somewhat separate? Well. They, for the most part, some groupings are related to, to peoples on the other side of the border. That's especially true on the western side of the country. Uh, Burma, of course, on the, Myanmar on the, on the west borders uh, along India and along Bangladesh. Uh, and people uh, in, in some of those states, especially in India, the states of Assam and, uh, and uh, uh, Mizoram, those are states where ethnic populations are kind of divided 
historical communities are kind of divided by the, the, the border between Myanmar and India, which exists today, which is a border that was created by the British back in 1947. Um, but in other parts of, of the country, the, the peoples on the borders, especially, for example, on the eastern side, uh, some are related. The Shan people, for example, are related to Thai uh, people in Thailand. Shan is a, is a, it's a, a local pronunciation. It's a cognate of the word Siam. Uh, uh, that uh, that used mm -hmm. to be the name of that of the of what's today Thailand, as in the movie. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, but other groupings, uh, uh, the Karen uh, people, for example, who are down uh, further south in the in the in the peninsula, uh, are are speakers of a language called Mon M O N, and uh, and that's a whole separate uh, sort of ethno linguistic uh, community there, maybe with some ties. Uh, over to what's now Cambodia. Khmer language is also a Mon language, but, uh, but not immediately on the other side of the border today. So, and in the north, uh, where it's very mountainous, uh, the highest mountains in the country are in the far north, uh, many of those communities are, are, you know, occupy a single mountain valley, and you go over the ridge to the next valley, and it's a different language, mm. a different culture. Uh, so it's a, it's a very, very complex mix. And they sometimes, some of them were brought into uh, relationships, generally relationships of subordination with the kingdoms. Uh, some of them were always independent and simply wound up being kind of fenced in uh, when the British came along because the Europeans wanted to establish boundaries mm -hmm. and have clear administrative territories. Uh, and so you wound up with, with some people being lumped together in units that didn't really have uh, a sort of local authenticity. So before the British, the, the boundaries were at least somewhat fluid? Very much so, mm -hmm. very much so. Mm -hmm. the, the, the territories of, of the Burmese kingdoms you know, ebbed and flowed. There was a period in the 18th century when much of what is today Thailand and Laos was incorporated in, in the Burmese kingdom. But there were other periods where the kings of Burma uh, barely controlled the, the core area along the Irrawaddy. So, the, so throughout history, there's been expansion and contraction of that political space. Mm -hmm. So did the British succeed at least in creating a common language? Not at all. Not at all. Mm -hmm. The British, <laughs> what the British did, that, that uh, they did a number of things, but, but the, the one thing that they did which was probably the most problematic was that in an effort to not exactly divide and rule, but in an effort to, to make their administrative tasks easier for them, they, they dismissed, they, they marginalized the existing Burmese elites and instead recruited for uh, positions in, in the lower levels of the colonial administration overwhelmingly recruited people from the, the peripheral uh, ethnic communities oh. so that they took people who had been in, in subordinate relationships, uh, not necessarily terribly exploitive relationships, but certainly relationships of subordination, and they put them in positions of, of power and authority. Uh, the traditional village elites were, were marginalized, mm. uh, and uh, uh, you know it became a very a sort of inversion of what had been the power relationships. And then, of course, when the British disappeared, 
that inversion became the, the, the focus of, of, of intense competition. And, and unsustainable, really, because yeah. they didn't have the power to do that without being propped up. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Which is why, since 1948, uh, there has been basically continuous warfare, uh, sometimes between you know many of the ethnic communities and the Burmese. Uh, and sometimes there have been periods. Uh, uh, the, the 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 90s was a period where there was there were a lot of ceasefires that were signed. There was a lot of negotiation going on. There were efforts to 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 kind of chill things out and 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 get everybody into a common program. But then those some of those efforts have broken down. Some groups, uh, the the Wa uh, people who are on the border, right right about where Thailand and Laos meet on the eastern border, they've never um, accepted really the authority of of the Burmese state, the Burmese military. So it's it's been a patchwork uh, uh, at best. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but without. Uh, <sighs> without a real solid underpinning to hold that patchwork together. And, and what was the point of the name change from Burma to Myanmar? Well, Burma was the name that the British gave to that territory. Um, the, 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 and that term itself has its own history. The, the, the ethnonym for the people in the, in the Irrawaddy Valley, the core people. And, and the core people are what, about two-thirds? About two-thirds, almost 70 yeah. percent, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, is basically uh, sometimes it's pronounced Bama, sometimes it's Burma. It 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 depends a little bit on on where you are within that mm -hmm. space. Um, the British rendered that as Burma, and those people as Burmese, but they then applied that term to the entire geographic space. So after independence, it became you know the the Burmese Republic, the Republic of Burma, the the. Um, Union of Burma uh, because of the, the multiple ethnic units. Uh, but in, uh, in uh, I think it's 88 or 89, the, the military rulers, the junta, um, decided to use the term uh, to, to rename the country Myanmar, which is a, also an ethnonym, uh, but it refers specifically to the, the Burmese people. Okay? Uh, in fact, it's 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 not actually a name. It's a it's a it's a it's an adjective, uh, mm. so it's a modifier. Uh, but it basically means the country of us people. You know, you mm. might. It's sort of a self-identifier, but some some sources will say that that was an attempt to to extend a recognition to all the communities within the, the political space of, of the country. That the term Burma was too associated with British colonial rule and all the problems that had stemmed from that. And now Myanmar was going to be a, uh, a, a kind of a United States of Burma, right? Other people, though, and, and uh, my impression uh, from, from conversations there is that uh, it was perceived, it has been perceived by many people as an assertion of ethnic preeminence for the, for the Burmese themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a change in name that, that nobody really liked, uh, but, uh, but, you know, is, is well, sort of what, what's, what's come to be uh, uh, the, certainly the official designation.
I mean, no one except the military dictatorship that... Right. They're, they seem very happy with it, yeah. Yeah, so it seems like it was one ethnocentric uh, label replacing another. Replacing another, yeah. Yeah, which is not totally surprising. I mean, two, 70%, or almost 70%, is, it's a pretty solid majority. True enough. Um, and it would be really difficult. It's, it, it seems to me to be totally inclusive, uh, you know, unless it were founded as such. Right. Which it apparently wasn't. <laughs> no, certainly, certainly not. Mm-hmm. Certainly not. Well, let's uh, touch on uh, Aung San Suu Kyi. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll talk about her and then we'll talk about other things and com- probably come back to her. But she seems to me to be the stuff of a tragic opera. I'm just waiting for it to come out. <laughs> what makes her story so compelling and do recent events represent her last act? Well, Aung San Suu Kyi is the daughter of Aung San. And Aung San was the leader of the independence movement and of the original Burmese National Army. And that is a whole complex uh, story in its own right. The when World War II broke out, the Japanese, who had uh, pre-positioned troops in, in southern Indochina, Indochina was a French colony, France had been occupied by the Nazis, the Nazis were allied with the Japanese, they ordered the French to tell their colonial administration in Indochina to cooperate with the Japanese, the Japanese put troops into Indochina. That was in 1940. In December of 41, when the Pacific War gets started, those troops went uh, up the railway that ran from Cambodia up to Bangkok uh, and took over Thailand. Uh, Thailand at that point had a kind of militarist government of its own. So they were, you know, that wasn't, they didn't invade Thailand, the Japanese. They were welcomed in Thailand. But then they kept going and they crossed into British India, which at that point included Burma, and, and occupied most of Burma, except for the very, very far north, those very rugged mountains in the far north. And at first, uh, the Japanese, part of, part of their avowed mission in World War II was to drive European imperialism out of Asia. Uh, they envisioned something they called the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, where Asians would get together under Japanese leadership, get rid of the Europeans, and, and create a new, a new future. And some of the nationalist movements uh, in different countries uh, uh, went along with that, including uh, Aung San and the Burmese uh, uh, anti-British forces in Burma. So the Japanese armed the Burmese National Army, gave them training, and the Burmese National Army fought against the British from 1942 until early 1945. But then, seeing that the Japanese were about to go down, they flipped and began to support the British fighting against the Japanese. So that when the war came to an end in August of 45, the British recognized the British National Army and Aung San as, uh, as a force uh, to, be, to be taken seriously and dealt with. And when independence came in 48, it was the Burmese National Army that became the core of that state. But before that, in 47, um, Aung San was assassinated. Uh, he and a number of other leaders were, were blown up at a, at a meeting that they were mm-hmm. attending. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he was, he was taken off the table. Assassinated Aung San Suu Kyi, by, by whom? 
uh, by rivals within the, the, the Burmese national movement. Mm-hmm. He was perceived by some as being too willing to negotiate with the British. Uh, there were others who, who wanted a more, I don't know, uh, wanted to drive the British out rather than have a sort of you know negotiated withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi, his daughter, was just a baby at that point. And, uh, but she sort of inherits that mantle. So the reason that she has had such incredible uh, prestige, such an aura around her, is in part uh, because she is the daughter of, of this martyr of mm-hmm. Burmese independence, mm-hmm. who, ironically, perhaps, you know, be- because he was assassinated even before independence, never had to deal with the complexities of governing uh, and so never was never was tarnished by any of the right. of the, the 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 difficulties of of rule right you know right so uh, if you if you want to become famous becoming a martyr is a good strategy other, it is uh, a very good strategy. other than dying we were talking about uh the martyrdom of of uh Aung san and uh and then how that conferred a kind of Royal, royal kind of uh, almost, almost, yeah. almost. Okay, Certainly, so. uh, uh, the the legacy. Aung San is still um, revered, widely revered in uh, in Myanmar. Uh, there's a a great uh, shrine, you, you could say, to him. Uh, uh, that uh, th- there's an annual commemoration of his assassination, and and you know uh, thousands and thousands of people come and place flowers, and there's a big statue, and it's it's quite a it's quite a quite a scene. Uh, so he's he remains this this very very powerful iconic figure. Um, after independence, when the the military was uh, was playing a, 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 a subordinate role, there was a civilian government from 1948 to 1962. So the military was powerful, but they weren't running the the country. Uh, uh, and during that period, uh, Aung San's widow, Aung San Suu Kyi's mother, uh, played a, a political role in in the in the country. But after 1962, when the military took power, uh, uh, her mother was uh, uh, named as ambassador to India. And so she uh, then uh, uh, went to school, finished her high school education in India, went to uh, university in, uh, in, uh, in Britain, in England, and uh, uh, lived outside the country for quite a while. She married uh, a, a British subject, uh, uh, who uh, uh, actually is a, uh, a, a Tibetologist, a, a, a scholar, a historian of, of Tibet. Um, they had uh, uh, two uh, children together, which is important because there are provisions in the constitution of Myanmar mm-hmm. which make it impossible for someone to become president if you have fam- immediate family <coughs> members who are not was that law enacted in order to prevent? It, it predates. Predates. Okay. Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't specifically put in place to uh, to to thwart her ambitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a it's a general principle, uh, which again reflects the the intense. Um, uh, I, I even hesitate to use the term nationalist, but the the intense localist. Uh, uh, political feeling uh, within certainly within the, the junta, but uh, but in in 
in mainstream Burmese political culture in general. It is a very, very self-focused, internally focused culture, and the mistrust of foreign forces is is a very very powerful force. Yeah, it's a kind of residue of uh, colonial trauma. It is a residue of colonial trauma, although I think it also predates, uh, uh, you know, the colonial period. Although uh, the it even even its relationship to the colonial period is not is not purely one of of being a, a concern about uh, Europeans about the the British or or other Westerners. Uh, one of the problems that, that developed during the colonial period was that huge numbers of uh, people from India proper, uh, uh, Hindus and, and uh, Muslims from Bengal and like that, moved into uh, Burma, especially in the south, or especially around the city that the capital, uh, the legislative capital now, Yangon, which we used to call Rangoon. Uh, the southern end of, uh, of uh, Burma uh, eventually had a majority Indian population, mm. uh, the city of Yangon especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a huge tension. So they were not, they were not the, 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 the powers of the colonial state, but they came in and played a very, very powerful role in the economy. Mm-hmm. And that, was, that became a problem. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a lot of expulsion of Indian people after independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet another uh, ethnic tension. Right, which would be... You said Hindu, but also a lot of Muslims, no? Yes. Because that would be right next to Bangladesh. Yes. Because the, the, the Western border is more Bangladesh than India. India is just a little small amount. Uh, it's about half and half, I would say. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and all of that gets complicated, again, if we go back to pre-colonial history, uh, to 18th century history. There's, a, there's a, a strip of territory, and this is where... Uh, the, the, the problems with the, the people that today we refer to as the Rohingya uh, come in. Uh, there's a strip of territory there called the Arakan. And historically, the Arakan was, at certain points, its own kingdom. Uh, and it, it encompassed territories in, in what today is, is Myanmar and a little bit of what today is Bangladesh. Uh, but in the 1780s, a period of expansion for the Burmese kingdom, they, they conquered uh, the Arakan. Uh, there's a very famous uh, a Buddhist statue that was looted from the Arakanese capital, a city called Mrak'u, that was brought back to uh, the, the Burmese capital at that point uh, and now is in uh, the city of Mandalay. And, you know... <laughs> So Arakan, which has a mixed population of, of Bengali-speaking Muslims and Burmese-speaking Buddhists, mm-hmm. uh, you know, then was incorporated into the Burmese kingdom. So when it was independent, was, it, was there cooperation within their kingdom between Buddhists and, and uh, yes. Muslims? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was a majority Buddhist state, um, but... There was a significant Muslim population, especially in the northern uh, districts, uh, and that yeah, that had not been. It was a you know, I mean, the the fact that they had this very famous Buddhist statue, it was a big, a big focal point of um, of uh, pilgrimage and things like that. Uh, so it was, yeah, the Arakan was a a mixed society. There were Hindu people uh, living there as well, so it was a very mixed. 
right. uh, 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 religious sort of environment. So this is one of the separatist fringe states, or fringe meaning uh, geographically, mm -hmm. and, and, and the, the, the people who wanted the independence were not just the Muslims, also the, the Buddhists, right? There are two separate, well, there are probably more than just two organizations, but there, yeah, there are two separate movements for independence today uh, in the Arakan, uh, which today is called Rakhine, uh, uh, which is a, a sort of Burmesized version of mm -hmm. Arakan. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there are there are there's the the Muslim separatists, there the Rakhine uh, independence forces, the the Rohingya forces, and then there's the Arakan Buddhist independence movement uh, because that harkens back to when Arakan was an independent Buddhist kingdom. So both of those movements are opposed to the central government in Myanmar. But they are also hostile to one another. Well, wow. yeah, yeah. I, if you look at any of these particular conflicts, um, they—it's not just that. Oh, there's the, the the Burmese center and these ethnic communities that are fighting it. There's also tensions between different groupings. Um, Within the independence movements in 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 the Shan state, which is a, the biggest of the uh, geographically of the of the the regions, it borders on Thailand. Um, there's a northern Shan army, and then there's the main Shan army. The the British, and one must, as a footnote, take take conscious or to recognize that the Americans. Uh, sent a lot of Protestant missionaries to Burma during colonial period. They didn't have much success in the lowlands, but they devoted their attentions to the highlands, mm -hmm. in part because those were the people being privileged by the British. And so now, many of the communities, especially on the east and in the north, are Christian. But, of course, it's not that simple because you have some communities that are Baptist. In the Wa state, for example, uh, there's a lot of Baptists. But there are also other groupings. And sometimes the Baptists and the Presbyterians have to shoot at each other. Mm. So it, the layers of, of complexity just, you know, you just peel off one layer of the onion and, and there's the next one. Uh, and, and, and Arakan, you know, the, the, the Rohingya situation, the, the, the Rakhine situation is, is a good example of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I want to read a little quote from the book that you recommended I read by uh, Tant Mien U, uh, The Hidden History of Burma. Uh, the British took over a mixed and ever-changing political landscape and fixed boundaries to suit themselves. But by administering areas differently, they set up fault lines around memory, identity, and aspiration that have vexed all attempts so far at nation building. Yeah, I think that's a that's a, a brilliant summary, uh, uh, and 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 that's very much no one um, within uh, post-colonial uh, Burma or Myanmar has really been able to figure out how to, to bring these peoples uh, together, how to find a path that will give recognition, legitimacy, participation, uh, some, some approach to, a, to a, a, a sort of economic 
uh, uh, egalitarianism or, or at least uh, you know some sort of balancing. Uh, it's uh, the, the military which has been the, the dominant force since 1962 uh, and, and really in many ways even before that. Uh, is overwhelmingly uh, Burmese, overwhelmingly from the majority ethnic community. Um, they, from time to time, have incorporated ethnic armies within the Burmese National Army, but they always have been maintained as distinctive groupings, which is what they've wanted. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, you mentioned Tantmin U's book, and, and uh, he... he remains, uh, he has an article uh, in, in the current uh, issue of, uh, I forget if it's foreign policy or foreign affairs, one of those. Um, he's, he's feeling very bleak about things uh, in, uh, in, in Burma. As he, mm -hmm. he still likes to call it Burma, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very, you know, <laughs> seeing a path forward is a very, very difficult uh, Difficult well, thing. Well, things were looking somewhat hopeful. I think we can get back to Aung San Suu Kyi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, uh, you know, she was in, in, in under house arrest for, what, 15 years or something yeah. like that? And, and, and then she was released. And from what I've read, it sounds like the, the outgoing general was wisely or seemingly wisely trying to install his replacements in such a way that he wouldn't be in danger. Right, yeah, put, yeah. Put the, weak, the weak general in charge of the most important ministry and, mm -hmm, the, and the, mm -hmm. the stronger one in charge of a less important and and somehow, I guess, agreed to release uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, but only after the election. <laughs> right. And, and he thought that he was like managing like a chess game. Like, well, and, and for a while it seemed to have gone rather well. Uh, the uh, uh, that's Tan Shui, who was the the uh, the second of the military uh, leaders of the junta. He the, after sixty two, uh, the first general uh, General Ne Win was in charge for a long time, and then he passed from the scene, and Tan Shui became the leader, uh, and was around for a long time. And when he was approaching retirement, exactly as you say, he conceived this plan. He didn't want some some the next strong man to turn against him. Uh, and so he thought that uh, a combination of reaching down and sort of promoting younger officers uh, uh, who, who would, in a sense, then be sort of beholden to him, but also balancing military and civilian uh, uh, components in the government. So uh, there was this long, long period of negotiation over writing a, uh, uh, a constitution. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi becomes identified with an organization called the National League for Democracy, the NLD. And that, uh, in terms of the perceptions of, of the outside world, you know, people outside of, of Burma, um, that becomes the, the pro-democracy uh, uh, movement. Uh, in fact, there are there are a lot of other political groupings within the country, but but that was certainly the biggest and most uh, kind of prestigious one. Um, and so Aung San Suu Kyi is is the leader of the the National League for Democracy, the NLD. But she's under house arrest. You know, uh, uh, there had been demonstrations in 1988, Buddhist monks in the streets, students in the streets. And uh, uh, she was, uh, of course, associated with that. 
uh, and so the the junta put her put her uh, you know she house arrests living in this very nice colonial mansion by this lake in in Yangon um, but she you know was there she couldn't leave and access uh, was uh, was tightly controlled but Tan Shui decided that uh, she would be a useful sort of counterforce or, or, or balance to these, these younger generals. And, and yeah, this whole scenario played out. Uh, there were elections in, in 2011 and then again in 2015 in which the NLD did, did very, very well. A landslide. Uh, landslide, yeah. Uh, the, the military has its own party. Um, what is it? The UDSP. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the constitution, which is in place now, the constitution that they oversaw the drafting of, guarantees 25% of the seats in the parliament to the military, um, which is actually a situation that we see in a number of post-colonial uh, countries. Indonesia has the same uh, constitutional provisions. That's where they borrowed it from uh, because of the role of the military and uh, in trying to bring together a, a riotously disparate political mix. Uh, Indonesia is very much the same way. Uh, but uh, uh, that, that 25% guaranteed seats, they're not elected. The military just says, you guys go and take these seats. But that party, the UDSP, also runs candidates. So candidates elected that are sympathetic to the military augment that 25%. So it makes the political calculations even more complex. So ordinarily they would have the dominant influence, but because the landslide was so great, it was a huge threat. Yes, and in fact, of course, that's the, the, the elections last November. Uh, uh, once again, the NLD achieved even, even a bigger landslide. Even a bigger uh, dominance. And that's what triggered the, the coup that took place in February. Uh, because the, the, the current military uh, leadership uh, really just feel, felt at that point, apparently, uh, uh, totally threatened, you know, that, yeah. that the way things had been developing, you know, they had thought that this would be sort of a, a, a condominium, a shared power thing. But clearly, more and more and more, the expressed popular will was mm-hmm. that the NLD should be the governing body. And that, that has... Uh, and Aung freaked Sun, out the military. And Aung San Suu Kyi managed to get around the prohibition from being president by being named something else, right? Well, they created a position uh, after 1915, or not 1915, after 2015, <laughs> um, they created a position called uh, counselor. And so she is the, the state counselor. She's the only one, and, and it was a position explicitly <coughs> created for her. But it, it overcomes that constitutional prohibition uh, not that she can then become president, but it it, it skirts that right. and and gives her effective uh, leadership. The president uh, is is a figurehead uh, who doesn't really uh, right. play much of a role. Uh, the real power uh, is is still with the military commander, uh, uh, Min Ongkling, and uh, uh, you know that's he's of course the one who is who is right. uh, running the show right now. Right. We're talking about uh, what's been happening with Aung San Suu Kyi. So her her party, the uh, NLD, is that right? Yes. Um, 
won an, an incredible landslide uh, recently, and within a few months, she's been deposed by uh, General um, Minon Lang. Lang. Lang, yeah. and uh, so she's under house arrest once again. And well, she's, and she's seventy-five, which yeah, is why she's, I, thought, I thought maybe this is the last chapter. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure that she's uh, back home. Uh, she gave up the house, uh, the lake house in Yangon. I think she's. Um, I'm sure that they're keeping her in reasonably mm -hmm. comfortable uh, uh, conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is—it's not a return to to her being. They don't want her to be in a situation where people could sort of rally outside her home and things right, like that. I see, that. so they're vice letter. Um, yeah, she and, and, and virtually the, the entire leadership of the NLD that they yeah. can track down, they're all in jail. No, yeah. I wonder if an, another uh, factor, the one factor is that the victory was such a lopsided one and that was a threat, but I also I wonder if the other part was that she had become a weaker figure internationally because of her handling of the Rohingya, Rohingya uh, crisis. Yeah. Um, and I think it's pretty clear that it's more complex than the world would like to think that it is, which is not to say that it isn't uh, a horrendous situation. But yeah. she's lost so much prestige. She's apparently, most of the awards that she was awarded for her peace work have been rescinded. Yeah. The exception being the Nobel Prize, which apparently is not rescindable. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise it would have been. Indeed. Yeah, uh, her, uh, the, the, the sort of... Um public relations fortunes of Aung San Suu Kyi have, have uh, certainly uh, been reversed uh, quite, quite dramatically. I think that that's part of some really fundamental questions that need to be understood about Myanmar, about Burma. So much of the way that it gets talked about, in, especially in the West, uh, is this this rhetoric, this this political discourse of a struggle for democracy, uh, and and democracy as a as a relatively vague concept, uh, you know the idea it, we we tend to focus on the idea that oh there should be elections and there should be multiple political parties. Well, Myanmar has certainly moved in that direction. The recent elections, 2015, uh, 2020, uh, there were multiple parties uh, and, and, and there was free and open campaigning and all that. Uh, some of those trappings, uh, these sort of institutional trappings of democracy uh, are certainly in place or had been in place. What will happen as a result of, of the current turmoil is another question. But democracy, going back to, to perhaps classical Greek roots, you know, the, 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 the will of the people, how exactly that, that works in a situation such as Myanmar uh, can be pretty problematic. When we look at the situation in the Arakan, we look at the situation with the Rohingya, the, the reality is that the vast majority of, of uh, certainly of Burmese people, uh, see the Rohingya as a, a, an alien presence in the country. They fear uh, Islamic militancy. There's a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, social media, uh, you know, Facebook and things like that in, uh, in Myanmar, and a lot of information, disinformation, truthiness, fake news, whatever you want to call it, you know, sloshing about there. Uh, 
Um, partly facilitated by Facebook. Partly facilitated by Facebook. So, well, certainly very much facilitated by Facebook, yes. Um, and, and there is genuine fear and anxiety on the part of large numbers of, of Burmese people. Whether or not that is, is substantive, whether there's right. any basis in reality for that, although it has to be said that the, the separatist movements in the Arakan, like the separatist movements in all the other peripheral regions of the country, have attacked government installations. There's been intercommunal violence. We talked a little bit of, a few minutes ago, the idea of Muslims and, and Buddhists fighting each other. Um, there is violence and there has been terrorism and it has not only been, it's not just a matter of the Burmese state and the Burmese military going in and sort of, uh, you know, without reason, uh, without provocation, you know, attacking, yeah, without provocation, attacking these people. That doesn't by any means justify the, the brutality <laughs> and the horror that the, the army has right. inflicted, but it's not, it didn't come out it's of not nowhere. a black and white situation. Right, right. Aung San Suu Kyi as a, as the leader of a democratic movement, as, as a popular, perhaps even populist leader, apparently her calculation, uh, if not her own personal conviction, has been that she's not in a position to put her entire political fortune and her reputation on the line in Burma, in Myanmar, on the basis of what most people, most of her constituents see as an at best marginal situation, and at worst something that, that ought to be disposed of. So she's in a very, very difficult political right. situation. She's trying to deal with the military. She's trying to deal with her popular base, as they say. She's trying to deal with the international community. Uh, you know, God forbid there be more sanctions. All that does is is make life worse for the ordinary people. In right, Burma. and there were tremendous sanctions for decades. Oh, for for, it's, for Burma was the most heavily sanctioned country in the world for mm -hmm. over a decade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I traveled there in uh, in uh, what 2018, which was a period. It might have been the peak of openness and foreign investment and all that. And the, the, the Burmese people that, you know, with whom I spoke, which one has to recognize are, you know, university-educated uh, uh, people. You know, I'm not out, I don't speak Burmese, I'm not out in some village talking to, 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 to farmers. But there was this tremendous feeling of optimism, uh, but they all spoke about how difficult the sanctions had been and how all that had done was hurt ordinary people because the military was insulated they had they controlled these natural energy resources and other kinds of, of well, economic assets that insulate the military right. and they, they get the money first right and they, and they have more money than you could imagine and the, the disparity of wealth is among the worst in the whole world yes it is it certainly is yeah so it seems to me one of the the problems is that there isn't a kind of national uh, identity or mythology around to rally around so you have the, the two-thirds Burmese, of course, and, and Aung San Suu Kyi is Burmese, and I, I think yeah. probably identifies as such. I mean, most countries don't have what the United States has, you know, for all its faults, that we have this idea of individual freedom and liberty, and something that can apply to everybody. Right. No, I mean, <laughs> the United States, in, in, in many ways, we are an example of a country in which if you walk down the street in, in a given city, 
uh, and you look around, there's no way to look at people and say, oh, they're Americans and they're, you know, something else. Mm -hmm. I remember I remember actually being in Washington, D.C. at one point with a, a visiting delegation of, of Chinese, and they were looking around, and, and there were uh, Asian people, uh, uh, and, and they asked me, oh, are those, you know, are those foreigners? And I said, no, they're probably Americans, you know, and mm -hmm. I said, great thing is here, you can't just tell by looking, uh, which... Uh, you know, in many parts of the world, uh, uh, you can, and certainly in Myanmar, people, uh, you know, there are all kinds of markers, clothing, mm -hmm. language, hairstyles, I mean, all kinds of stuff. So you're, I, I, you're exactly right that, that there is not a, a unitary identity. Um, the idea of, of being Burmese is being Burmese. And, and the ethnicity, yeah, the ethnicity, mm -hmm. and and speaking that language, and and you know, it, it has not been the case that 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 has been imposed on all these other ethnicities, um, and and that has been in part because of the violent struggles that have gone on. None of those ethnicities, I mean, the Shan people, the Wa people, you know, various valley groups up north, they're not really in a position to become sort of independent countries on their own. And that's not what most of those movements seek. They, they want seek a federation, what they call right? Autonomy, yes, right. some kind of federation. But that federal idea seems to have had a very, very difficult time taking root uh, in, in Myanmar. You know, Tant Mien U that you mentioned, uh, he, he's a very strong advocate of, of a kind of federalist solution. Uh, he's Burmese himself. His his grandfather was Utant, the the UN General Secretary, and and you know so he comes from a a very cultured, deep Burmese background, but he you know has this this hope, um, which many you know people, <laughs> many people outside. Well, Myanmar what's the most? It's say. the most realistic of unlikely hopes, right? <laughs> yeah, it, well, that's it. You can sort of see rationally that if you're going to resolve this, it has to be done on some sort of federalist basis. But the path from, from here to there uh, is, is, is very difficult to see. Although the current situation, you know, I think in, in February when the generals took over again, they thought, well, there'll be a little wave of unrest and then things will go back to to normal and we'll be able to rejig things once more. That has not proven to be the case. Uh, you know, there's been massive public resistance. There's a, it's not even a government in exile. It's a, it's a, it's an alternative government has proclaimed itself now uh, uh, in, in Yangon uh, uh, that has to be sort of underground, but, mm -hmm. but is still there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the political situation is very very fluid right now and what's what's going to emerge from this i think is not right. at all clear so before we end uh, i wanted to talk a little bit about the economics because you know the political part is fascinating and complicated but the economics is really heartbreaking yes uh myanmar is the most uh, is the poorest country in, in the region one of the poorest in the world mm -hmm. and uh, in reading the book i, I uh, noticed that there were at least two if not three horrendous events that maybe could account for it. One was that uh, d during World War II that uh, because the Japanese had taken over first and then the Allies came in, the Allies bombed the hell out of this, the cities uh, and it, was, it, it destroyed virtually all the infrastructure. Yes. And then uh, in 2008, there was an enormous cyclone, Nargis, right. that uh, destroyed um, the southern part of the country where 
most of the agriculture. Right, 140,000 people killed, yeah. Um, yeah, so it seems that, that it's really hard to get on your feet with the, that kind of legacy. Yeah, and and the the history of that is is again, it's in some ways it's a history of bad choices too. Uh, some of those things are, are are imposed from outside, but some of them have been problematic decisions. The the in the in the period of civilian rule, and then in the first maybe 18 years of military rule, they, the government and, and the junta tried to pursue what they called uh, the, a Burmese road to socialism. They had a vision coming out of, of uh, anti-colonial movements uh, broadly across Asia and other parts of the world, a sort of uh, you know, socialist progressive vision of building uh, an egalitarian economy after colonialism. And of course they're in the shadow of China, although I think the style was more Soviet from what I've read. Yeah, it was definitely uh, more influenced by, by the, the Soviet experience, but they chose to pursue that in a very autarkic way. They, they did not want, they didn't seek assistance from the Chinese, from even from the Russians. Um, they wanted to, they were so adamant in rejecting outside intervention or interference, they wanted to chart their own path. And they did for a while achieve a kind of egalitarianism of poverty, I suppose you could say. It was a very, very, it remains a very, very poor country. But at that point, at least it was a country where everybody was poor. There, there wasn't really a... Uh, no middle class. Uh, well, there was no middle class, and there wasn't really even a, a, a much of an elite. That changed um, as people, you know, uh, partly as communication improved and, and people became more aware of what was happening in the outside world, and the military went through a change, kind of a generational change, where they wanted to be a more modernized military. And so they kind of shifted gears and went to this, uh, uh, they embraced the sort of neoliberal wave in the world, but with the military as the driving force. So the military has become quite rich. Mm -hmm. And if you want a, you know, a prosperous career, not that, not that the military are all living in great mansions or anything, but, but if you wanted more security, more stability, a greater prospect of, of, of an of a, of a economically sound life, the military mm -hmm. was, was a, a good path to follow. But that has meant that, that the, the, the civilian population has just remained, as, as you say, one of the poorest in the world. Most villages still don't have electricity. Uh, uh, you know, it's, and, and most don't have very elaborate modes of, of coping with that. You know? mm -hmm, so it's, mm -hmm. it's a very, very rough life for the, for the majority, even for the Burmese majority, let alone once you get out to the peripheries. So this is a loaded term, but should Myanmar be considered a failed state? Well, some people uh, are, are beginning to portray it that way. And, and um, you know, uh, I, I have heard it argued that, uh, that perhaps once it fails, new forces will emerge or some new coalition will emerge, which will then kind of restart it. Something has to happen there, one would hope. 
or it it could fester for decades. It's it's hard to say. Right, it's been festering for so long anyway. Why? What would change? You know, and yeah. what, the way military dictatorships work is you hand out favors and, and money to the. To well, and it must be loyalty. said that Aung San Suu Kyi is, as you know, she's in her late seventies now. She mm -hmm. will be leaving the scene at some point. What will happen? You know, is there a political force that that can emerge that will unify even the Burmese in a way that she has? It's, that's not at all clear to me. I don't know mm -hmm. who. You know, she has stood so far above everybody else in terms right. of her prestige and the respect for her. Mm -hmm. Who can be that kind of unifying figure? Right. It's, it's, and, and my understanding is it's not just her, her lineage, but also when she was under house arrest, she was given the opportunity to leave Burma and be with her husband who was dying of cancer. Right. Maybe it was England or yeah, somewhere in England. England. And she refused to go because she knew she wouldn't be let, let back in. Right. That, that, she got a lot of credit for that. Oh, yeah. There's no question that, that her life since returning to, to Burma, has been devoted to her, her political project and, and, yeah. and to her patriotism for her country. There's, there's no question of that. Now, why is it that with this latest uh, coup, and it's, I, I almost hesitate to call it a coup because this is the norm, <laughs> military dictatorship is the norm, um, that there's been no criticism about it from Russia, China, India, Bangladesh, Thailand, Vietnam, or the Philippines. <laughs> I mean, are they approving or they just don't want to get involved? They don't want to take sides? I mean, it's really amazing. I think that, <laughs> I think that, that perhaps, um, I mean, for some of those countries, you know, non-interference in the internal affairs of others is kind of a, is kind of a, principle. Uh, a an at least stated principle, yeah. right? Obviously, there's, there's gradations of, uh, of how that works out in practice. Um, for the countries immediately bordering uh, Myanmar, uh, Bangladesh, India, China, especially Thailand as well, I think that there's a sense that, I don't know if it's okay to, to still use this imagery in, in our modern age, but of, of the tar baby, you mm -hmm. know, that, that you, if, if you, you know, if you try to, to, to reach in and, and, adjust things or make a difference, you may just wind up being drawn deeper and deeper into a, uh, a, a negative situation. In other words, they're, they're realists. Very much so. And I think that right now it's like, you know, let's just, we're not going to mess with this. It's a bad situation, but we don't want to make it worse. Right. And given our current exit strategy from Afghanistan, you uh -huh. can't really look too askance yeah, at Can't that, blame them. You know? Okay. Well, uh, Ken Hammond, it's been really a pleasure to have you on the show, a professor of East Asian and Global History at NMSU since 1994, uh, an expert on uh, Southeast Asia and China especially. It's been really uh, delightful to have you on Delving In. It's been a great conversation. Hope we can do it again sometime. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.